When we receive a gift that is valuable to us, uh, we in turn want to share that same kind of gift with someone else. Uh, What I mean by that is, um, as an example, uh, one of the greatest gifts I've ever received, uh, a gift I believe from God Himself to me is the gift of my wife, Edie. And the love and the mercy and the faithfulness that she has shown me uh, for uh, 1991 to 2020, be 30 years next year of marriage. Uh, the, uh, the, the love that she has shown me for all of those years has nourished my soul in ways that I could never, ever begin to describe. I can try, but I can't. I can't give words to something so magnificent as her love to me. To share life with her has been um, a wonderful uh, adventure for me, challenging for her at times, more challenging than she deserves. But I've received this gift of love and relationship and intimacy with my wife, and I want to re-gift that. I want to uh, help my daughters and the men that they have married or will marry to experience that same kind of love in relationship. I want to help them on that journey. That's re-gifting. What we're looking at as we look from here until the end of, of 2020, we're looking at this idea of regifting, looking at the gifts that God has given us and how that we can regift those gifts to others. Last week we looked at how that God gives us a light through Jesus Christ that gives us life. Uh, it pierces the darkness of sin and our despair and hopelessness uh, in the person of Jesus. And so we want to, as we have received Uh, this light uh, that gives life. We want to share that light that gives life with others. And I pray and hope that you've been doing that this week, to share that gift of light. Uh, Today, we're looking at the gift of grace. Now, grace is a big word in the Bible, and it's a word that we need to take hold of as followers of Jesus, but also in everyday life. We live in a weird kind of time, don't we? We live in a… there's a guy named Don Henley uh, who used to be one of the lead singers. He was the drummer for the Eagles. I don't know, am I talking over somebody's head? Um, But Don Henley released a single album and on that… or a, a solo album, and on that solo album was a song, and and part of that song, he said, we live in a graceless age. And he's talking about the need for forgiveness. Now, I don't think Don Henley has an idea of who Jesus is. Uh, I don't believe that he's a follower of Jesus, but he sure did nail that. We, we live in such a graceless age. And this past week, I'm sure, has highlighted the gracelessness of our age. The last several months has highlighted the gracelessness of our age. But what is grace? What, what do we mean 
by grace. What does the Bible mean when it talks about grace? Grace, um, from uh, the Old Testament perspective and the New Testament perspective, it is God who cares about us, stooping down toward us, and rescuing us. It's, it's God who is holy and perfect, who doesn't need us, but this God who uh, is perfect and holy determined that He would care about us, and even if we're hostile toward Him, even if we're not on His team, He stoops toward us so that He might rescue us. That's grace. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. That's grace. Grace is God's love in action, and grace is displayed in the person of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, and and, and you remember John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and nothing was made that was made apart from Him. In Him was life, and that life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness couldn't overwhelm it. And that was the picture of Jesus delivering life and light to humanity. Verse 14 of John 1 is a picture of grace. Remember, here's what grace is. Grace is God caring about us and stooping over toward us to rescue us. John 1:14, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory full uh, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. And Jesus came as the stooping of God toward us in order to rescue us. We need grace. And today, as we look at the landscape of our life, and as we look at Scripture today, last week we looked at, at uh, the beginning of time and even before the beginning of time. Today, I want to encourage you to flip over to Genesis. We're going to look at verses, uh, verse 315, but, but I want you to go to Genesis, and, and I want to tell you the story of the beginning. So, in John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's, that's kind of pre-creation. Uh, Jesus, uh, the pre-existent one, was there at the beginning and is the creator and the king of cosmos. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you know how that verse goes, right? Very similar to John 1, 1. Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we have this rendition of God creating the heavens and the earth, seven days of creation, six days of work, one day of rest. And God separated the light from the darkness and the waters from above, from the waters from beneath. He, he, he formed the earth 
He uh, created uh, the sun and the moon and the stars, and, and he created the sky, and he, he created night, and he created uh, day, and he said all of that was good. He started creating animals. He made, uh, after he made mountains, he made mountain goats, and after he made jungles, he made uh, salamanders to live in those jungles, and, and after he made the Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee, he made Salmo Truta. Actually, he didn't. Salmo Truta were never found in the, in the Smoky Mountains until they were introduced from Germany later. But uh, he, he, he made the beautiful trout in the mountain streams. And God made uh, birds that fly and fish that swim. He made bees that, hung, uh, that, that uh, buzz around. He made uh, mosquitoes and gnats. And he said, it is good. All that he created, from the sky above to the sea beneath to the animals in between, he said, it is good. But God saved his last creative work for his greatest crowning achievement of creativity. And in Genesis 1, it says that God made man in his own image and in his own likeness. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God made Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, the progenitors of humanity. They are the first man and woman created by God, and they um, form the foundation of our society. And God looked at all that he had created, Adam and Eve, and he said, this is good. Everything that God has created, God says, is good. From, uh, from the, the bees uh, to baby seals or wolves or gnats or mosquitoes, he says, it is good. But there's something different about humanity, something different about man and woman. And God made us in His image and likeness. And from uh, the inception of an infant in the womb of her or his mother, God has made that infant in His image and likeness. The crowning achievement, higher than baby wolves, greater and more significant than gnats or owls or salamanders. Even before that infant's first breath outside the womb, God formed that baby in uniqueness, treasuring that infant, though unborn. And God says, that's good. Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden. Paradise, everything that we would imagine paradise to be. Uh, they had no shame. They had no guilt. They were not naive because they didn't know what naivety 
was. They lived in harmony with each other. They lived in harmony with the created order. They, they had all the food they could ever want. They had all the purpose and significance and satisfaction that they would ever need. They walked each day with God in the garden. They had fellowship with the one who had created them. They had paradise. God gave them freedom, a freedom to choose. And God gave them choice to make. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. God said to them, uh, have dominion over all the animals and all the trees and all the fruit of the trees and all the vegetables you can grow. Have dominion over that. But God also said, there's this one tree in the middle of the garden. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you shall not eat from that tree. Everything else, wide open. But that one tree, God said, I forbid you from eating the fruit of that tree. Now comes Genesis chapter 3. You know, Genesis chapter 3, if you've uh, taken any classes in Sunday school, you know Genesis chapter 3. You might not know it's Genesis chapter 3, but you know the story. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and along slithers the serpent. The serpent is more than just a snake on his belly. The serpent was Satan himself. Cast out of heaven because of his rebellion against God, Satan, uh, an angel that has fallen from uh, the family of God. He is, he is opposed to God. He is fighting against God. And for millennia now, he has absolutely given himself to dethrone God. That is the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And the serpent comes uh, moving up, and the serpent was... Um, subtle and cunning, and knew what buttons to push on Adam and Eve, and, and he approached them, and he said, you see this tree, and God said, you can eat of any other tree except for this tree, and God warned you, if you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, and the serpent says, Satan says, oh, you're not going to die. In fact, what God is doing, he's trying to rob you of something that will make you better, you can't trust God, trust me. You eat of that fruit and you will become like God. And look in Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave to her husband with her, and he ate. That simple act of what many of us would consider a minor disobedience sent all humanity on a crash course of dissatisfaction and hopelessness and fear. It sent us out of paradise into a wilderness, wandering along, trying to fill the emptiness in our soul. The reason that simple act was created such a dastardly effect is because in that moment, humanity said, I am going to be team serpent, not team God. 
In fact, every time you sin, every time I sin, you realize that's what we're saying. Every time you sin, every time I sin, we're saying God's not trustworthy. I'm going to be team serpent, not team God. This is the plight of every human that has ever been born. This, this curse of sin has, has uh, cycled in our soul uh, throughout time since Adam and Eve, and we have been destroyed by Adam and Eve's sin and by our sin. You see, the greatest need of every human heart is to have fellowship with the one who created them. Your greatest need, my greatest need in life is not a bigger house or a, a, a better car or uh, more friends or more money. That, those are things that we say, I can get this stuff and it's going to satisfy me, but it will never satisfy because the one longing of your soul, because you and I were made in the image and likeness of God, the only thing that can satisfy us is being part of God's family. And the very thing that we need to satisfy our soul is the very thing we cannot get because of our sin. There is a chasm between us and God that we cannot cross. There is a distance between us and God that we cannot diminish. Our sin has killed us. And we're longing for paradise again. As Adam and Eve were confronted by God in the garden, and God said, okay, there's going to be consequence for your sin. But in the reciting of the consequence for sin, there's also the promise of God's grace. I want you to read verse 15. Now this, uh, Genesis 3.15 says, God is speaking, I will put hostility between you, talking to the serpent, I'm going to put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he, being the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head or crush your head, and you, being the serpent, shall bruise his heel. Now, you might say, well, that's no, no big deal, and what, what, what's… What, I don't understand the significance of verse 15. Well, the significance of verse 15 is the unveiling of God's perfect plan to give grace to sinners like you and me. He's saying to the, to the serpent, to Satan, he said, okay, I, I'm going to curse you and you're going to eat dust for the rest of your time, right? And, and, and that's going to be a reality, but there will be hostility. There's going to be enmity. There's going to be fighting and chaos between the serpent, Team Satan, and the woman, humanity. In fact, we see this enmity, this hostility, this fighting, everything that we see in our culture today is a direct result of what we read in verse 15. That's the hostility. That's the enmity. The wars and rumors of wars, the earthquakes, a climate change, or fires, or whatever you want to call it, it all finds its source and origin at the enmity and the hostility between serpent, Satan, and humanity. That's what sin has done. But he goes on. God says, okay, there's going to be enmity between you 
and the woman and between your seed and the seed of the woman. Now, here's the hint of promise that we hear. The seed of the serpent, who is that? Who's the offspring of uh, the serpent? Well, that's everybody who's team serpent. That's who I was at one time. You might say, what? Well, you're a Southern Baptist, white, evangelical Baptist preacher person. How could you be team serpent? Well, I was team serpent because I was far from God, lost in my sin. Guess what? You were team serpent. Separated from God by your sin. You're on one side or the other. And, and we don't like to think of ourselves this way. When Jesus uh, was ministering in, in, uh, in Israel uh, and, and he was healing people and, and giving sight to blind people and raising people up off their deathbeds and, and, and uh, uh, teaching great truths and people were following and he was multiplying uh, loaves of bread and fish and feeding uh, thousands of people. When, when Jesus was walking on water and stopping the storm, there was a group of people that were not team Jesus called Pharisees and Sadducees. They were the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And they were not team Jesus. They kept accusing him of being a heretic. They kept accusing him of being team serpent. You know what Jesus called this group of people? He said, you are a brood of vipers. You are team Satan. When we look at ourselves and our sin, we don't like to think of ourselves as team Satan, but that's, that's what we are. And that's not a political statement, by the way. That's a, a reality of our humanity. So we see that he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed is the promise of Jesus. If you were to flip over to Galatians chapter 4, okay, Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse, uh, verse 3, even so when we were children, we're under bondage under the elements of the world. Ephes- uh, Galatians, did I say Galatians? Galatians 4, 3. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. He's saying you were team serpent. Verse 4, but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying, well, Jesus, the seed of the woman who gave birth in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. The seed is the promise of God's grace. The gift that God gives us is that Through Jesus, by God's grace, we, who once were slaves and foreigners and 
strangers to the family of God, we who once were far from God can find life through faith in Christ. The promise, the gift that we find in this passage is that by grace through Jesus, God undoes what sin has done in our life. This is the gift, the promise, the gift that God makes in Genesis 3.15, that, that by grace through Jesus, what sin has done, and what has sin done? Sin has separated us from God. What has sin done? Sin has created us as enemies of God, and we live at enmity with God. We deserve death, but God in His grace stoops down to us. He cares about us in our emptiness. He stoops down to us in love in the person of Jesus, and He rescues us through Jesus. This is grace. The promise of Jesus is the promise of grace to you and to me. It's a grace that we have not earned. It's not something we deserve. We deserve punishment. But what God offers us is forgiveness. And it's forgiveness not because we're Baptists. It's forgiveness not because we're, we're here in this room. It's forgiveness based upon God's great love for us. We were dead in our sin and trespass. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ Jesus by grace, you and I have been saved. The debt that we owed because of our sin was death. Jesus came, fully God, became a man, born in a manger in a stable, lived a perfect a holy life, went to a cross in the place of a sinner like you or like me, and he took the sin of Eric Thomas upon his back, and he died there, and he was buried in a tomb, and he was raised from the dead, and in that resurrection and in that crucifixion, he crushed the head of Satan forever. And when I and you, by faith, take hold of Jesus as our King, then the emptiness of our life disappears. The lack of hope or the lack of purpose disappears. Why? Because we are now brought into the family of God. We who were once far from God are now sons and daughters of God. We're no longer slaves to sin, but now we are sons and daughters. This is the gift of God's grace. Grace. Yeah. You were online, you didn't hear that probably, but yeah. It is the gift of grace that gives us life. And it's the gift of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. That grace comes through no other. And God stoops toward us because he cares about us to rescue us through Jesus Christ. As we look at grace and what it means. I, I, I imagine I were uh, driving uh, from my home uh, in Great Bridge and driving to uh, Rodanthe in the Outer Banks to get my car, and I decide, and this is a mythical made-up story. So I get my car, and I start driving uh, the highway down to Rodanthe, and I'm driving lickety-split along, and I get through uh, Kill Devil Hills, and I get on past, and I 
uh, past uh, 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 the, the turnoff there, and I start going toward Oregon Inlet, and I cross the bridge there, and I start making my way through that stretch toward Rodanthe, and I'm, I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm going lickety-split, and all of a sudden, uh, I hear sounds and lights, and I think they're throwing a party for me. And I look in my rearview mirror, and there are uh, sounds and lights of a police officer who's pulled me over. I pull over, and he, he uh, knocks on me and says, yes, sir. And he says, uh, he says uh, uh, gets my information. He says, Mr. Thomas, you were driving su- such and such speed, and it is so many miles over the speed limit, and I'm going to give you a ticket. And I said, thank you, sir. Can I have another? And he says... Uh, and he, he writes me a ticket, and he says, uh, uh, he says, now you can go to court on this day, and this is where the courthouse is, or you can pay the ticket online. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I take the ticket, and I drive on. Now, just imagine, this really is imaginary. Imagine that I decide I'm going to the courthouse instead of paying the ticket online because I've always paid tickets online because I'm ashamed to go and stand in front of the judge and answer for the speeding I've done. But just suppose I found courage, and I decide I'm going to go uh, stand before the judge. And I go to the courthouse, and I stand in the, in the courthouse, and the judge looks at me and looks at the summons and, the, and the, the, uh, how I've broken the law. He says, Mr. Thomas, this says that you were going so many miles over the speed limit. Is that true? I say, and I say, yes, sir, that is true. And he says, so are you pleading guilty today? And I say, yes, sir, I am as guilty as they come. And he looks at the ticket again. He says, Eric Thomas. Eric, Eric Thomas, Eric Thomas, Eric Thomas. I know that name. I know that name. How do I know that name? Now, you're, you're, it says here you're from Chesapeake. He said, but I have a cousin. I have a cousin that lives up there in Hampton Roads. And, and uh, Eric Thomas. Oh, it, it, my cousin goes to a church. It's First Baptist Church in Norfolk. And, and, and I think his pastor's name is Thomas. Is it, do you know this guy, this pastor of this church? Yes, sir, I know him very well. Yes, sir. Suppose the judge looks at me and he smiles. He said, "Now, uh, he says, now, uh, uh, Pastor Thomas. <laughs> he says, you're guilty, and I can't erase the guilt. Somebody's got to pay the fine. And just imagine it was two hundred and sixty-four dollars and seventy-five cents." Somebody has to pay the fine. And, and Pastor Thomas, you're the one who owes the debt. But because I know your, your name, because I know you, I'm going to pay the debt for you. The debt had to be paid. And I was the one who had to pay it, but the judge decided he would pay the debt on my behalf. Friends, that is grace. We owed a debt of sin. It shrouded us in death and destruction. But God promised the seed who becomes our Savior to take the debt and pay it himself through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you know exactly what grace is because you've received him as your Lord and Savior. The gift that God gives us by grace through Jesus 
God undoes what sin has done. God undoes it. We're back in paradise. We're sitting at the table of God. We're walking and living in intimacy with God. We, we have the Spirit of Christ poured within us so that we can cry out to God the Father, Abba. We're forgiven. No longer hiding in shame. No longer dwelling in guilt. We, we have received the gift of grace. And if you're a follower of Jesus Aren't you excited? Aren't you thrilled? It's not what you do. It's what Jesus has done for you. That's the gift. So what is the re-gift? Well, the re-gift is because of Jesus, we extend grace to others. That's the re-gift. See, the grace of God is not just some religious exercise that gets us a get-out-of-hell-free card. The gift of grace that God gives us is intimacy with with himself. Grace defines and shapes the way we live our lives. And friends, we live in a graceless age. What would it look like if this church, if you and I would give ourselves, because of what Jesus has done for us, to extend grace to those around us? Can I read you a couple of things that came across my timeline this past week? Just just a couple of things. statements that one Christian made to another just this past few days. From one Christian to another, this guy says, if we could waterboard you two million times, we would. From one Baptist pastor to another, you're a buffoon and an idiot. Just this past week, I've, I've, I've gotten notice that uh, there's at least one person not coming back to our church because I was not vocal enough about the election. We live in a graceless age. graceless. And it should never be that way for us who are the recipients of grace. Guys, you aren't part of God's family because you're good looking. I'm not part of God's family because I'm loud. We are only part of God's family by His grace. And we should be gracious to others. How do we extend grace to others? Well, we share grace. We extend grace by sharing grace. We need to tell somebody who is far from God how that they can experience the grace that we've experienced. We need, we're scattered throughout the seven cities of Hampton Roads and even around the world. I've got, we've got our church plant in Edmonton, Canada. They're up there and they are covered in snow and Canada has kept them from church, but man, they're going to have church so that they can share the good news of God's grace with those who are far from God. We need to tell the story that God, in the person of Christ, stooped toward us because he cares for us, so that he might rescue us from the death that we deserve through the crucifixion of Christ on a cross in the place of sinners, through his resurrection from the dead. Yes, we can live in forgiveness, but let me tell you how. It's through the grace of God. Have you shared 
the grace of God with someone this past week? Will you commit to share the grace of God with someone next week? Tell the story of God's grace so that they might be rescued, so that they might find life. The second thing we need to do is we need to show grace to others. I mean, it's one thing to share the gospel, share grace with others. It's another thing for us to show grace to others. And I'm just going to leave you with this thought. Now, God's grace should be shaping your relationships, should be shaping my conversations. It should shape everything about my life. Should it not? Can we all agree about that? So here's what God's grace is supposed to look like in 2020, the week after a raucous election and still all this wrangling going on. What, what should me, as a follower of Jesus, a recipient of God's grace, how should I be acting? Should I be telling somebody else, if we could waterboard you two million times, we would? Should I be calling people buffoons and idiots? Here's what Paul said, uh, really God says to us through the pen of Paul. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29. Let no worthless word come out of your mouth, but only words that are good for the building up that someone needs, so that we might give grace to the people we talk to. Say it New King James way. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is necessary, good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to its hearers. What we say matters. And oh, what a difference it'll make in such a graceless age if people who are the recipients of God's grace share God's grace. Not just with each other, but with those who are far from God. Do you know what kind of statement that would make? You know, people pretty much have a clear idea of what I believe. I, there's really no hiding it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm pastor at First Baptist Church Norfolk. I've I've been clear about my beliefs. Not everybody, amazingly, not everybody agrees with what I believe. But my goal is for everyone to say, you know, I don't agree with him, but he sure is a gracious guy. You want to know why? Because that opens the door for the gospel to take hold of their heart. What would happen if instead of us trying to prove ourselves to be right, we would prove ourselves to be more like God who extended grace to us even when we were not on his team? If you've received the gift of grace, let's re-gift the gift of grace. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Oh, God in heaven, thank you for your love and your grace that you've shown us and help for us to ruminate, uh, to meditate, to uh, be captured by this wondrous grace that you've delivered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. 
For those in this room who are your people, I pray, O oh God, that you would help us share that grace with others, to extend grace to those who believe like we do and even those who don't believe like we do. Put a clamp on our mouth when we're tempted, as I am, when we're tempted to be less than grace-filled in our words. Help for us to take a breath and pray, oh God, how can my words deliver grace to this person with whom I'm talking? Now, God, I pray that you would use First Baptist Church Norfolk and all who are here in the room and online, use us to be givers of grace to people in such a graceless age. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.